My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the February edition of the journal. The first article relates to admissions with bronchiolitis. Admissions with bronchiolitis during the season are a considerable burden to the overall paediatric healthcare resource. In this issue, Green and colleagues report on the changes in hospital admission rates over the last 50 years. This is by analysis of multiple different recording systems, including hospital inpatient inquiry, that's from 1968 to 85, hospital episode statistics, that's from 1989 to 2001, Oxford Record Linkage Study, which is from 1963 to 2011, and the Paediatric Intensive Care Audit Network, which is from 2003 to 2012. So this is a mixed data set. The data shows a seven-fold increase since bronchiolitis was given a separate discharge code in 1979, so the increase is from 6.6 to 46.1 episodes per thousand infants aged less than one. The interesting sub-analysis shows that admissions to paediatric intensive care rose only a little, that's from 1.3 to 1.6 infants per 100,000 aged less than one year during the period 2004 to 11 when it was monitored. There was a major geographical variation in admission rates with a five-fold difference. Risk factors for admission included young maternal age, low social class, low birth weight and maternal smoking. There are many potential factors that could at least partially explain this, which are discussed in the paper. That is, explain the increase in admissions and the geographical variation. These include changes in how emergency care is delivered, changes in how the hospital admission criteria are recorded, lowered thresholds for admission, increase in the accuracy of discharge diagnosis, an increasing prevalence of risk factors including the improvements in survival of infants born preterm. Disease severity, however, is probably less of a factor if the admissions to paediatric intensive care can be used as a proxy for that. The data does present a challenge. The challenge is how to best impact on it and includes a powerful argument for developing strategies for prevention through vaccination. The implications for healthcare delivery are discussed in the accompanying editorial, stemming the tide of hospital admissions for bronchiolitis. The second article I'd like to cover relates to recent advances in respiratory medicine. In an up-to-date and authoritative review, Ian Balfour-Lynn discusses important advances in respiratory medicine over the last few years. The focus is mainly on common conditions with practical guidance and includes discussion of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, nebulized hypertonic saline for bronchiolitis, the changing epidemiology of childhood pneumonia, adenotonsillectomy for obstructive sleep apnea, advances in the diagnosis of primary ciliary dyskinesia and childhood interstitial lung disease. There are useful updates on different aspects of the asthma management guidance, including a review of asthma deaths, 
the detail in the guidelines, the impact of bacteria on asthma development and exacerbations, the role of electronic monitors, reminders on adherence and control, the use of Montelukas for preschool weeks. The article is well put together and it's an excellent summary of what's new in respiratory paediatrics. It's editor's choice this month. The third article relates to are all children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder referred? So this is interesting and hugely relevant to us as clinicians. Many children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder do not access services, although it's well known that treatment has a positive impact on outcome, short and long term. In this issue, Efren and colleagues investigate the prevalence, types and predictors of use of professional services by families of children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Children were identified by parent and teacher screening by Connors, three, followed by formal case confirmation using the appropriate diagnostic interview schedule. This is 179 children aged 6 to 8. More than a third of the cohort had not accessed professional service use in the previous 12 months. Predictors of service use were older children and the impact of the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder on the child after controlling for confounders including type severity and such like. This is an interesting data set. In a condition where treatment is of benefit, this suggests there is a need for healthcare professionals to consider the condition as a factor in children who present with symptoms of all types and to refer on for professional help if appropriate. It's an important paper that should impact on our practice. The fourth paper I'd like to cover relates to touchscreen technology usage in toddlers. Numerous touchscreen technologies are available for children and toddlers and their use is endemic. Whereas I have a widespread anxiety about the potential harm of media which is dependent on the duration of and specifics of the exposure. In this issue, Ahern and colleagues report the outcome of parental questionnaires, that's 82, completed for children aged 12 months to 3 years, which examine the access to touchscreen technologies and the ability to perform common interactions with them. 71% of toddlers had access for a median of 15 minutes per day. 24 months was the median age that children could unlock the screen, swipe through multiple images and look for specific features. By 25 months median, toddlers could identify and use specific touchscreen features. In summary, therefore, by around age 2, many toddlers have specific skills to interact with touchscreen technology purposefully. This opens up potential for the use of such devices for both assessment and intervention and necessitates further research into risks and benefits of such early exposure, particularly considering whether the exposure is active, that's interactive, or passive, and the longer-term outcomes in terms of health, well-being, and educational value. The fifth paper I'd like to cover relates to bacteremic urinary tract infection in infants less than three months. Bacteremic urinary tract infection now represents the most common source of bacteremia in young infants, 
although the implications of this on treatment, including antibiotic duration, is unclear. In this issue, Schroeder and colleagues report on parental treatment duration and relapses in infants less than three months with bacteremic urinary tract infection, that same pathogenic organism from blood and urine. It's a retrospective cohort study, 11 centres, 251 infants. The mean duration of antibiotics was seven plus or minus four days. There was considerable variation, partly centre-specific, and that's in figure two in the paper, with a two-fold variation in the mean duration of treatment across the participating institutions. That's 5.5 to 12 days. Other factors that predicted a longer treatment course included male sex, clinical state, comorbidities, organisms other than E. coli, positive repeat culture during treatment course. No child in the study had a relapse or a second infection within 30 days. The authors conclude that the duration of antibiotics is variable and only partially explained by clinical factors and that it may be that a shorter course would be safe, effective and appropriate for most infants. In a thought-provoking accompanying editorial, Andrew Reedon asks the question, 5, 7, 10, 14 days, what is appropriate treatment for bacteremia? He ends up with the pragmatic recommendation. The duration of antibiotics could be guided by clinical features commonly used to decide whether patients can be switched to oral antibiotics. Suitable oral agent, child-tolerating oral feeds, afebrile for 24 to 48 hours, clinical improvement, reduced inflammatory markers, etc. My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for further information on the papers discussed. Thanks for listening.